All right. Well, hello, everyone. I am back with another episode for everyone. And uh, like episode seven, this episode is also going live for Creative North Shore uh, for their live streaming series they've been doing to keep artists afloat during the pandemic. So as always, if you listen to episode seven, um, do remember that I will be Speaking to people in comment sections, it's going to be a little different of a format than you're used to hearing since it is a live podcast. Uh, and just know that any materials that I mentioned in the episode, I will also have on the website on my blog. As you've seen before, if you've been on my website uh, or listened to my episodes on iTunes and been directed to my website, those articles will be there on the episode page on lifeaftermidnightsalem.com. So definitely go check it out afterwards. If you are listening to this on iTunes, you can go check out the website for any of the materials that you hear me describe during this episode. Welcome to episode eight. Uh, This is an episode that I've been wanting to work on for quite some time. I actually started working on it last year when I started working with Intermersive as their dramaturg, when I was initially doing some of my outlining for the cast on spiritualism, and it led me into having to research sort of the beginnings of that movement in different aspects of it, uh, which led me to researching Phantasmagoria, which then led to me research re-researching um, America's first Gothic novel. So this is an episode I've been wanting to do because I did a lot of work on this novel in my undergrad work in Bucks. Uh, and so I wanted to bring this to life for you guys. So without further ado, uh, welcome. This is episode eight, Wonderfully Cruel Proceedings, Charles Brockton Brown, Phantasmagoria, and the Murders That Made America's First Gothic Novel. So buckle up, I'm about to go live right now. For anyone who doesn't know what Phantasmagoria is, um, trust me, I will be explaining that as we wait for this to go live here. All right, everyone. Hello. Hopefully everyone's out there and is watching. I would like to welcome you once again to Life After Midnight Live. And I thank you all for continuing to join me Every single time I do this, it's been really great to see what Creative North Shore has been doing uh, for all of the artists in our community and promoting them and all the hard work that the team at Creative Collective has been doing uh, to sort of keep this going. I'm going to just get right down to it because I've got a lot to cover as always, so I got to get my notes here. And I actually have my thesis for a few quotes, so um, I've been kind of scared to, to share this bad boy with everybody, but here we go. This is an episode I've been wanting to do and that I actually wanted to do and record for the podcast uh, last year because it's something that I did a lot of undergraduate work on when I was studying the American Revolution. I started studying uh, deism and in a course that I did that was dealing with a lot of that and a lot of early American literature, we read this novel and just discussed it in the terms of deism and sort of the belief and the sort of almost panic that that was causing amongst a lot of people, because you wouldn't think something like deism, which is a a religious belief based on forces of nature, would cause a whole lot of griping, but it really did. It was really interesting to me, and I actually presented on the novel and its psychology at an undergrad conference, but I don't want to spoil it yet. Before we get started, for everyone that's watching, all 18 of you, does anyone want to take a guess at who America's first gothic novel author was? Because you might be surprised, and some of you may know who this is, some of you may not. So I'm going to watch the comment section 
And if you think you know, I want you to take a guess in the comment section right now at who you think America's first Gothic novelist was. All right, if you don't want to guess right now, then you can guess a little later. I'm still not going to introduce it, but I am going to talk a little bit about what got me to this subject matter, which is a phenomenon or actually an art form, I should say, called phantasmagoria. And for those of you who are not familiar with what phantasmagoria is, I actually did a little bit of research on this when I was researching spiritualism for my thesis, but it actually is a phenomenon, an art form that started in the 17th century. And as I've constantly been on about over and over and over again, death and dying is something that has always been depicted in art for as long as humans could comprehend what that means. Uh, and in the 17th century, we most certainly see this with different artists who have early depictions of demons, early depictions of hell, and everything like that. But this is an art form that used a little bit of technology for the first time. So spirit manifestation was put into a stage show for the first time in the 17th century. And these were known as lantern light shows from their early inception. They later came to be known as phantasmagoria. And so it wasn't really used for entertainment purposes in the 17th century yet. That comes a little bit later, um, but more by magicians and metaphysicists of the time to depict images of death, anatomy, and spirit that were supposed to scare people or trick people into doing good. So the earliest imagery usage tends to depict devils or demons. And eventually these worked into early magic lantern usages, which could project images using convex mirrors and a lamp. So I'm gonna do a screen share right now uh, so that you can all see this and some early depictions. So when I'm talking about Phantasmagoria, these are some of the original images that you tend to see associated with Phantasmagoria. And my mom just guessed Lovecraft for America's first Gothic novelist. Sorry, mom, you are wrong. Uh, he comes way later than some of these Gothic novelists, but it's a good guess. And Lovecraft does have his ties in New England. He is also a flagrant racist, so I have lots of feelings about Lovecraft. Um, but back to this, you um, are seeing what is usually depicted as some of the first images of Phantasmagoria. But some of the earlier images of Phantasmagoria are actually some of these. So. This right here is from 1659, and it's sketches for a projection of death taking off of, off his head. So this is from uh, Hugin, who is one of the early phantasmagoricists who discovers how to use the magic lantern. So obviously it depicts those sorts of things. Later on, we start to get a little bit more complicated. So this is from 1677. And it's an illustration of an early Southern German lantern from uh, a man named Sturm's book called the Collegium Experimentale Sive Curiosum. So this is some of the early magic lanterns. As you can see, it's got a little bit of candlelight right there. And it's got the image right here. And this is the projection that it's going to come through and hit a mirror. And up here, it actually has some smoke coming out. So what does this look like when it's actually projected? Because it is a very strange phenomenon. It is literally using smoke and mirrors, which when I was talking with Intermersive when we first did smoke and mirrors and I brought that up, that I think that was what sort of clicked us into the name. And I said smoke and mirrors and 
immediately everyone just kind of went, oh my God, smoke and mirrors. So even though that was set in 1849, a lot of our inspiration came from some of these earlier depictions. So this is that lantern from 1677. Later on, we start getting a little more complicated in the 18th century. So this is from 1720. It is the Physices Elementa Mathematica. Um, of, and this is from Jan van Muschenbroek's Magic Lantern um, from a page from William Gravesand's book. Um, so William Gravesand is the author of that book. And these are some of the images he's showing of how the inner workings of an 18th century magic lantern actually work. So why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Because I'm sure you're all wondering, why are you talking to me about weird 18th century physics and mirrors and smoke? And yes, it's a projection. What's so great about it? Well, later on, um, we start to get more into this. And so this phenomenon starts to impress scientists earlier in the 17th century. And a French physician and numismatist named Charles Patton was so impressed with the Lantern Show that he performed for a, a, a Monsieur Gruller performed for him in Nuremberg. Um, so the quote from this man who first witnessed Phantasmagoria said that he even stirs the shadows at his pleasure without the aid of the underworld. My esteem for his knowledge could not prevent my fright. I believed there was never a greater magician than him in the world. I experienced paradise, I experienced hell, I experienced specters. I have some constancy, but I would have willingly given one half to save the other. So that's what is so interesting about Phantasmagoria. When this does later become a stage show in the late 18th, early 19th century, it scares the pants off of people because if you're thinking of these larger than life images of demons being projected out and they would use the smoke to actually project them into the smoke. So it looked like these images were actually coming toward you. And so these are images of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It later gets very, very ornate. And I'll show you an example on video a little bit that I actually found from a museum that experimented with this phenomenon uh, with some modern technology using magic lanterns in a little bit. As in the 18th century, with the rise of romanticism in Gothic literature, also became a societal obsession with the supernatural and the bizarre. Um, so this all sort of ties back to deism. So what is deism, you may ask? Well, I wrote that down because I can never remember the proper way to say that because it's very, very complicated. Deism is a belief that many of the natural forces around us govern the universe and that God is the sole creator of said natural forces. So we often like to think of the 18th century in terms of the age of reason. That's something that's always sort of associated with that time period, um, but it still very much does has, have its base in religion. So even though people were leaning towards science at this time, deism basically said, Yes, there are natural forces at work. Yes, there are scientific things that we can figure out, but these are also an act of God. So how does that tie in then to phantasmagoria? All of these elements sort of came together. It was using these natural forces to literally depict images of death, dying, the supernatural, or these quote unquote natural forces that were at work in the world. So as you can imagine, it scared the poop out of people in the 18th century. So people started looking into this more. And as early as 1770, we start seeing techniques evolving from these early lantern light shows to use more complex setups of mirrors and light to project images of spirit. Um, and there was a man named Edme Guillaume, who was a French physician, inventor, and manufacturer. 
And through the 1770s, techniques like his were used in Europe as described here. In the early 1770s in Leipzig, Germany, a coffeehouse owner, charlatan, necromancer, and leader of an independent Freemason lodge, Johann George Schrupfer, or Schrupfer, if you get that loud in there, performed ghost-raising seances and necromantic experiments for his Freemason lodge. For typical necromantic activity, his followers were asked to fast for 24 hours and were served a salad and much punch before the midnight start of seances in a darkened room with a black draped altar. A robed Shrepfer performed the rituals and demanded his followers to remain seated at a table or face terrible dangers if they didn't. He made a mixture, use of a mixture of Masonic, Catholic, Catholic, and Kabbalistic symbolism, including skulls, a chalk circle on the floor, holy water, incense, and crucifixes. The spirits he raised were said to be clearly visible, hovering in the air, vaporous, and sometimes screaming terribly because people start using sound effects, uh, and having people backstage with the man magic lanterns actually using sound effects to make this scarier. The highlight of his career was a seance for the court of Dresden Palace in the early summer of 1774, and the event was impressive enough to still be described more than a century later in Germany and Britain. So we start to see more and more people becoming obsessed with this and actually learning about what exactly this technology is and how it can be useful. So just to show you some more images, this is a 1770s example of using smoke up here and mirrors down here. So you have this sort of mirror here that's gonna project the image up into the smoke that is going to hopefully billow out in front of a screen that you have on a stage or a black drape. Um, and so this can be as big or as small as you need it to be uh, based on what you are trying to accomplish, but that's the basis for what Phantasmagoria actually does. And so this doesn't actually come to the United States until 1803, and it actually comes to the Mount Vernon Garden in New York. So it actually, in the time of the Gothic novel I'm going to talk about, Phantasmagoria has not yet hit the United States. That does not mean that people did not know about it and they had not heard about it. They most certainly had. Um, and we do know that the author of the novel I'm going to introduce did visit London, and a lot of these Phantasmagoria shows were taking place in London. What, pray tell, does this look like? So if you're wondering, if you are wondering what a Phantasmagoria looks like, here we go. And I'm not going to have the volume up just because I am recording this, but I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So this is what these images will start to look like. Um, this is just doing the images with a magic lantern on a black drape that you'll see first. So we've got a demon, got a little, little spider, and this is from the Museo del Cinema. So they actually use these magic lanterns with smoke and mirrors uh, to let you know what this looks like. And so they're just showing a bunch of different images. But as you can see, when we really get going here, <laughs> you've got these images coming out toward you. And so depending on how you move the magic lantern, these would be projected out over the audience. And so you can imagine to people in the 18th century, this is going to be absolutely terrifying. You're having what looks like death coming out of the smoke at you. So it's this insane phenomenon that you can see here and see, oh, look, they're, they're dressing them up. Look, there's some hellfire there for you. Basically, these phantasmagorias become certainly very popular, and they lead to questions about spirituality at the, at the time. And so this is sort of how those work. So how does this relate then to America's first Gothic novel? Uh, I know that 
And yeah, this is cool. Sorry, I just saw my friend Jennifer commenting. This is really cool. Um, so I actually would like to try this. And Evan Northup, I'm looking at you because I know that you can do this and you can figure it out um, and probably have figured it out. But anyway, let's move on. So how, did this, how does this relate then to Deus and America's first Gothic novel? Well, things like Phantasmagoria and these sort of early forays into spiritualism and sort of exploring the natural forces that can create things like a Phantasmagoria also lends to the fact that people were learning how to control the spirit. So this is the first time when you're talking about Phantasmagoria and you're talking about the 18th century that people are having the earliest forays into controlling these sorts of elements and being able to communicate with these sorts of elements. In 1795, a man named Charles Brockton Brown in Philadelphia, and that is a portrait of him, pastel on paper from 1769. It was done by James Sharples in Philadelphia. Uh, so I was able to find an actual portrait of Charles Brockton Brown. He publishes his novel, Wieland or the Transformation. Wieland or the Transformation is a Gothic novel that discusses a man named Carwin, who is a drifter that has come to this town uh, and the Wheeland family actually lives in Philadelphia. So he's come to this town and he has started to allow the family to speak to a spirit and the family starts manifesting what they think is a spirit that starts to tell them secrets or secrets of the universe. And the first of these who gets taunted by it is um, Whelan's sister, Clara. So Clara goes so far to speculate at the end of all of this that it was really a supernatural force that the family is experiencing. And in the novel, it says that Whelan himself professes himself to be a deist. So he professes himself to believe in these sorts of natural forces that are governed by God and that the spirit is something man can communicate with through these natural forces. This is all probably starting to sound like spiritualism to many of you. If you have any uh, sort of experience with the history of spiritualism, and that is a whole other episode that I can get into after this is sort of a, a, a sequel to this episode, if you will. This is where we start to see this idea that man can communicate with these spiritual forces. So the Whelan family is racked by this spirit that is telling them all sorts of things, that is warning them of perils, that is starting to mess with the family. At the end of it, at the climax of this novel, Wieland, uh, the Theodore Wieland, um, the main sort of character and tragic hero of this story, murders his entire family because a spirit told him to do so. We later find out that the man, Carwin, who was a drifter, actually can throw his voice to make it sound like a spirit is behind somebody's ear. So all of this that Wieland claimed was a voice from God or a spirit moving him to do something and allowing himself to be manipulated by it actually drives him to murder his own family was this man Carwin who claims that he was responsible for Wieland murdering his entire family. So this is, and I'm sorry, it is not published in 1795. Um, it's spoken about in 1795. It's published a little later. It's published in 1798, but 1795 is when Wieland starts writing Wieland or the Transfer Transformation. <clears throat> and so this is an advertisement about Wieland. And before I show you that, actually, I'm going to go over here. 
So this is some of his early notes, Charles Brocken Brown's early notes on Wieland um, from 1797 when he's actually writing this. So you can see he's got tales over here, hallucination, mimery, uh, ventriloquism, dissimulation, love of country. So he's sort of putting all of these things together. Um, he's got some of his characters outlined here, vocal sounds, everything like this. So he's sort of put, piecing this together. And then in 1798, he releases this advertisement, which says the following work is delivered to the world as a first of a series of performances, which is with the favorable reception, this will induce the writer to publish. But he writes about Wieland and he says, the incidents related are extraordinary and rare. Some of them perhaps approach as nearly to the nature of miracles as can be done by that which is not truly miraculous. It is hoped that intelligent readers will not disapprove of the manner in which appearances are solved, but that the solution to be found to, will be found to correspond with the known principles of human nature. The power which the principal person is said to possess can scarcely be denied to be real. So he also says that some readers may think the conduct of the younger Wieland impossible. Uh, in support of its possibility, the writer must appeal to physicians and to men conservant with the latent springs and occasional perversions of the human mind. It will be necessary to add at the end, he writes, that this narrative is addressed in an epistolary form by the lady whose story it contains to a small number of friends whose curiosity with regard to it had been greatly awakened. The memoirs of Carwin alluded to at the conclusion of the work will be published or suppressed according to the reception which is given to the present attempt. So he's basically saying that he planned to release the memoirs of Carwin as a separate work that goes along with Wieland, um, but he is waiting for the reception of Wieland itself or the transformation. And so that it later becomes uh, published in other forms. So just to give you an idea of why this is called America's First Gothic Novel, <laughs> it is because this volume here that is published in London in 1822, which is years after the original novel is published in 1798, was read by none other than Mary Shelley. So Mary Shelley actually reads Wieland before she starts writing her own stuff. And this is one of the things that she reads. Wieland actually was addressed to Thomas Jefferson at one point. So at one point in his life, Charles Brockton Brown did send a copy, a complimentary copy in 1789. So before he even published the final version uh, to president, uh, vice president at the time, Thomas Jefferson, along with a letter, a letter that defended the significance of fiction and indicated his wish that Jefferson would enjoy the book and not find the time employed upon it tedious or uselessly, uselessly consumed. So why then would he feel the need to send this novel in its early inception prior to it being published in 1798 to Thomas Jefferson? Well, it's because, as I said before, deism was kind of a contentious subject. And there had been some murders previous to the release of Wieland that were making people question whether deism was a mentally sound following because the, both of these crimes were committed by people who claimed to be deists. And it's thought that they were the inspiration for America's first Gothic novel, as many murders are. We know that the murder of Captain White here in Salem was inspiration for The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. These murders that happened in the 1780s were inspiration for America's first Gothic novel written in Philadelphia 
1798. And if you are wondering if I'm going to talk about said murders, of course I am. Who do you think I am? So let's talk a little bit about some of these murders that were inspiration for the Gothic novel. Well, the first one, and what many people think to be the inspiration, comes from this account that is published, here we go, in 1796. So this account is published in 1796. I just had to double check my notes there. And it's in the New York Weekly Magazine, and it's talking about a murder that takes place in 1781. Uh, So this happened with a farmer named James Yates in upstate New York in 1781. In describing James Yates by several of his neighbors and people that attended the trial later on, he was known to be esteemed by his neighbors. He was gentle, kind, a sober and industrious man, and he was involved in a notoriously gruesome crime. So I'll reiterate that the episode that I've named this for my listeners on Life After Midnight that I'm recording this for currently I've named this episode, episode eight, Wonderfully Cruel Proceedings, Charles Brockton Brown, Phantasmagoria, and the Murders That Made America's First Gothic Novel. So this murder is notoriously gruesome, and it is called that uh, woefully cruel proceeding during the trial is how this murder uh, by James Yates is described. So what happens is that one December evening in 1781, Mr. Yates saw off all the neighbors who had visited his house. They visited his house for a reading of the Bible and for some singing of Psalms since it was a Sunday and there was no church nearby. So later that evening, he took his wife uh, on his lap and was reading the Bible with her by the fireplace when suddenly he heard two mysterious spirits, one of which bade him destroy all his idols and begin by casting the Bible into the fire. And although he was a caring father, affectionate husband, he actually follows the order that the spirit gives him, much like we see Wieland follow the order to kill his family in Charles Brockton Brown's novel, trusting this spirit and trusting that he actually is being spoken to by a spirit. So this actually does happen. He brutally kills his wife and his four children, including a six-month-old baby, one after another with an axe or a hatchet or by violently throwing them against the wall. So trigger warning for anyone. the violently throwing against the wall was believed to have been the baby. Um, The baby itself was violently thrown against the wall and killed by Yates. When asked about why he had done what he had done, Yates says, my father, thou knowest that it was in obedience to thy commands. He addressed this to God and for thy glory that I have done this deed. So it came to be known as those wonderfully cruel proceedings. And This article that you see before you was anonymously published in 1796. So you can see right here that it's published May 17th, 1796. And so basically this is what gives Wieland the inspiration because it's seen that a lot of the elements in this murder are actually used in Wieland's own battle with this spirit. But there are some people that argue that it could have been based on another murder that actually happens in London by a man named William Beadle. So I actually found this on the Weathersfield, Connecticut Historic Society site. 
and it talks about the cruel murder by William Beadle. So William Beadle was actually a merchant living in Connecticut. He was born in London around 1730. He and his wife Lydia, according to the Historical Society, moved to Wethersfield, Connecticut from Fairfield, Connecticut in April 1773 with their son Ansel and Elizabeth and two more daughters, Lydia and Mary, that were born after they moved to Wethersfield. Beadle became a highly successful merchant in Wethersfield and so successful, in fact, that following the Boston Tea Party, when the British Parliament passed the law that closed the port of Boston to all ships, Beadle actually gave money for the relief of Boston. He was one of the merchants that was helping from the outside to give relief to the people of Boston. So again, known to be a very well-known merchant, a very industrious and kind man, someone that helps his neighbors, uh, sort of like Yates in New York. But Ye uh, Beetle, like Yates, was known to be a deist. And so what starts to happen is he starts to go bankrupt. His business does not do well, and it sort of starts to tank. And so there's a motive to the crimes that he commits. And it's a quote from Beetle himself when he says, if a man who has once lived well, meant well, and done well, falls by unavoidable accident into poverty and then submits to be laughed at and despised and trampled upon by a set of wretches as far below him as the moon is below the sun, I say, is such a man submit, he must become meaner than meanness itself. So Beetle was not happy with the fact that he actually started to tank in his business. So he basically made the choice to kill himself and his family because in his mind, the forces that were at play could be controlled by him ending the lives of him and his family. So I talked about deism before, and he might have forgotten about the deist's writing because he was taking a more extreme form of deism when he's talking about his motives for the killing. He might have continued to privately ponder their ideas while professing Christianity in public. So he was not publicly a deist. He later confirmed himself to be a deist after it was found that he had committed the murders of his family. So basically, he makes the decision by November 1782, which is a little a year after the Yates murders. So this is the second murder that's happening that involves somebody that's proclaiming to be a deist. His wife leaves on November 7th, 1782, and right after she leaves, Beetle begins to compose a will, and he also wrote at least part of his first letter explaining the murders at this time. He sets a date on which he would commit the murders uh, as November 18th, and so his wife, uh, what's interesting about this is that his wife on November 17th told him that in her dream she had, she thought she had wrote many papers and was earnestly concerned about her and that these papers were spotted with blood and that she also saw a man would himself pass recovery and blood guzzle as she expressed it from different parts of his body so beetle found not in the dream itself but in his reception of its telling you're seeing these sort of dreams come through like members of the whelan family are said to have during their descriptions of what is happening to them with this spirit that they are witnessing so basically what starts to happen is people start to look at these murders. Charles Brockton Brown looks at these murders and he sees a means to publish his novel. Whether or not he had any political leaning in it is remains to be seen, but it is thought that um, he did have a little bit of a political aim to it. Brown depicted what he saw 
as a gruesome moral landscape, and this is uh, according to the author of this amazing article I found by Masahiko Narita uh, on Charles Brockton Brown, but it does make a lot of sense to me when you're thinking about ideas of, you know, taking control of those natural forces, you're thinking about where people are getting these ideas about deism and how man can control its communication with the spirit, but also at the same time realizing that these natural forces are a force of God as they believe it at the time. And through the fictional tragedy, as uh, Nishida writes, Brown depicted what he saw as the actual gruesome moral landscape hidden within a rationalistic and rapidly transforming post-revolutionary America. He also expected the story to warn Thomas Jefferson, which is why he, he sent him an ancillary copy uh, of the Republic's moral crisis for family killing fatherhood could be seen as a striking symbol of the whole era's pathology. So you're talking about post-revolution, you're talking about the building of this new Republic and the building of this empire, and you're seeing what he sees as familicide uh, in lieu of or not in lieu of, but familicide in favor of nationalism and in favor of support of this new republic. And there are many people that saw deism as a selfish turn away from Christianity by these people that were these rationalists that are forming this new republic and forming this new world. So people were using the examples of murders like the murder by James Yates and the murder by William Beadle to say that deism was in itself a poison, that it was not good for anybody who may be following it. And so if we go back to the real time of this, this is a sermon from Hartford in 1783 that was published after the funeral of Mrs. Lydia Beadle and their four children. So this is the sermon that was given uh, in 1782 after their deaths. And just to sum up everything, uh, thank you once again for watching. It's a little shorter of an episode tonight. I just wanted to share with you some information about Phantasmagoria, how that relates to spiritualism in the early days, and some information about America's first Gothic novel that was based on murders uh, by two self-proclaimed deists in an era when deism was becoming sort of the norm for some rational people at this time. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm really glad that you all stuck around. And again, if you missed any of this live, it will be up on the Creative North Shore Facebook page after this, but it will also be available on lifeaftermidnightsalem.com and on iTunes on my podcast website. So once again, everybody, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this and stay tuned for next week where I'm going to delve into the spiritualist movement and how that affected some very famous Salemites. Uh, so if you saw uh, Smoke and Mirrors at all, you'll be very familiar with the subject matter, but I'm going to talk about next week's spiritualism, uh, death after the Civil War, and how that movement was spurned by mass death after the American Civil War. So hopefully you will join me next week. I hope you're all doing okay out there. And I just want to take this last few minutes to say to everyone that I really do appreciate if you are watching this episode um, and that you continue to do so. Uh, if you want to show me some love on PayPal or Venmo, it's not necessary, but it is there in case you want to. Um, but I'm just happy to be able to share all this information with you. So thank you so much. Bye-bye.